0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and this month marks the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. I was talking with a friend this week about how the response to Floyd's murder saw possibly the most serious reckoning with systemic racism in America since the 1968 murder of another black man, Martin Luther King Jr., As a black writer in a country made rich by the exploitation of black people, you feel a sense of responsibility and obligation. And those of us in any positions of influence are here because of the sacrifices of those who've gone before us. And in using our platforms to inform the modern day world, there's often an additional level of urgency. You wanna honor those who came before you, tell their stories in compelling fashion, and use your talent to keep alive the efforts to make this country better. That is very much how I felt during the two years I spent writing How We Win the Civil War. So when I started reading the book, His Name is George Floyd, I immediately recognized the craft, the care, the commitment that went into making that book an artistically powerful and politically important work of art. His Name is George Floyd is additionally resonant to me because my book frames this current moment in the context of the ongoing civil war waged by Confederates. And this book traces back the roots of Floyd's family to those same post civil war years I write about. And so I was delighted. I was at the Tucson festival of books a couple of months ago, and I was delighted to meet one of the authors of this book. And we're blessed today to have both of them join us on the podcast today. And so joining me for this conversation is my podcast co-host and my book editor and coach Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you? Do you want to introduce our guest so we can see if their editors put them through the same kind of ringer that you put me through? Ah,
1: Well, first of all, probably not. And even if they did, they would probably not make the mistake you did, which is work with that same person twice. So I'm just really glad we're having this conversation today. You know, the more I think about the incidents that time in our nation's history in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and that summer, it brings back so many memories. And I want to also be part of making sure that as a nation and a world, that we don't forget that history and that we don't keep pushing for all the work that still needs to be done. I feel like the news cycle moves quickly, memories are short. And so I am just so glad we're having on today's guests. Really excited to have the co-authors on today of the book. His name is George Floyd. One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice. First, we have Tolushe Olorunipa Tolu, as many call him by Tolu. Tolu is the White House Bureau Chief of the Washington Post. He joined the Post in 2019, and over the course of his career as a journalist has covered the last three presidents. Before joining the Post, he spent five years at Bloomberg News, where he reported on politics and policy from Washington and places like Florida, He started his career at the Miami Herald, where he covered real estate, natural disasters, and crime, and sometimes apparently all at once. And we're also so glad to be joined today by the co-author of this book, Robert Samuels. Robert is a national political enterprise reporter, also at the Washington Post. He focuses on politics, policy, and the changing American identity. Robert joined the Post in 2011 after spending nearly five years working at the Miami Herald as well. And he covered some great stuff there, too. Politics, poverty, murder and mayhem, something about Miami. (laughs) But we are so glad to have you guys here today. Welcome, Tolu and Robert.
2: Thanks for having us. Uh, I also have some news. I I recently joined The New Yorker. So, oh, oh. yeah, I have a new I have a new
1: line. Oh, great. Congratulations. Thank you.
2: Well, we really appreciate
0: you guys joining us in general. And that um, I think for me also that um, having, you know, both being at, having been at the Post as an, and certainly in well, the covering Washington politics, additional resonance for me personally, in that, you know, my uncle, Orinzia Cochran, was a graduate of Columbia uh, Journalism School. And he went to work at the Washington Star in the 1950s where he was one of the first Black reporters covering the White House. So you're, yeah. you guys joining us um, has this additional significance. I'm really grateful for you making the time.
1: Uh, by the way, this is so special. We don't often have two guests on, and it's such a, a powerful book. And I was really curious because I know that, as Steve mentioned in the opening, uh, he and I have worked together on two of his books. But for sure, you know, Steve was the visionary for his book, themes and central arguments and driving the writing and the crafting. I was just there to give him a hard time about small things. But before you both decided
0: also known as making it better
1: (laughs) before you both decided to write this book, you know, being two journalists working together on one book, I'm sort of curious, you know, at the time you were both at The Washington Post, you did write a series of articles investigating the systemic factors surrounding George Floyd's murder. I first wanted to ask you about that particular series. I'm curious, how did that editorial decision come about to write that series and get published?
3: Um, we started off this process with a series in the Washington Post. We both were doing very different jobs in May of 2020 when George Floyd was murdered. I was covering the Trump White House um, and the beginning of the presidential election as it was really kicking into gear. Um, Robert was traveling the country, doing really deep, in-depth reporting on some of the divisions that we had in our country, with really sharp, smart feature stories uh, and long-form journalism. And we both were black men in the Washington Post who had covered racial justice issues in the past, who had covered some of the uprisings that we saw after other black men were killed, and they became hashtags. And you know, we were, you know, also living through a pandemic, and so we both independently. Felt a reluctance to engage with the, the the normal choreography that we see in newsrooms after someone is killed like this. We didn't want to just be a part of you know the you know very familiar process of you know writing a profile story, writing about the protests, writing about, you know, the fact that the protests sometimes get out of hand and, the, and then the, sometimes the police become a little bit too more too heavy handed. And, you know, there's a lot of back and forth people going to their different corners and some people are in favor of the protests. Some people are very angrily against them and say we shouldn't be having looting. And, you know, it, it was you know something we've been through before as journalists. And we were a little reluctant amid all of the demoralizing feelings of the pandemic and everything else going on in the spring of 2020 but we got in a meeting uh with some of our other colleagues and there was this discussion uh, about doing something different and in the aftermath of george floyd's death and as we saw more people um more corporations uh, broader uh, swath of the culture starts to respond to George Floyd's death in, in a new way. And we saw an opportunity to educate people about systemic racism as it exists. And, and the idea was to write about systemic racism in a broad, full way through the life experience of George Floyd, not only writing about his death, but writing about how he lived. And you know, as we learn more about how he lived from the segregated housing, uh, public housing that he grew up in, the underfunded schools that he was uh, forced to go to in Houston, the disparate treatment he got from America's healthcare system. We saw a number of the things that social science researchers talk about when they talk about systemic racism in the 21st century. And we saw a way to let readers and viewers see it through the life of someone they had already shown empathy for because they had seen him die on camera. And so that's how the series began. We did it alongside several of our colleagues at the Washington Post. And it really delivered for a lot of people a kind of message that they had not seen before. Not only were they able to see George Floyd in a new light, but they were able to see the country that he grew up in, in a new light. And we thought that was a really powerful way to use journalism to illuminate things that right in front of us, but many people aren't able to see. And so when the opportunity came about for us to extend the project and turn it into a full-length book, we were both very excited about the idea of going even deeper and telling George Floyd's story and the story of his America in a deep, uh, deeply researched way that would allow people to see systemic racism for all that it is in the 21st century. It's, it's harder to see, but if you look for it, you can see it in a number of our different institutions. And George Floyd definitely had those experiences with systemic racism in a number of different institutions, including the criminal justice system. And we wanted to expose that experience and allow people to see what his America was like.
2: The only thing that I'd add, Charlene, is that when we spoke about George Floyd, the, you know, the original story, the series that we did in The Post, it got us a good way, but it didn't capture the gregariousness or the fascination that I think all of the reporters had in learning about George Floyd. Mm. And the idea of learning about him, I think, would have been a fine thing to do for its own sake. but. There was also this larger question and it stemmed from these conversations that I had with these three white women who I met in the suburbs of Tulsa, Oklahoma during this, you know, really soul searching time in America. And one of them said, "Well, how are reading these books or learning about this person, how does this stop black people from being held back in this country?" And we knew Through the reporting that we did and from what we were learning, that if we were able to sort of cast this net widely, right, if we could help people see how systemic racism affected George Floyd's life, it might be able to unlock some of the inner stereotypes and prejudices that people had. People who might not think they traffic in racist systems or racist beliefs. But once they saw it operating in the lives of George Floyd, they might see something in themselves or in a place they work for or an institution they think about that might help them understand that systemic racism is real, its effects are disastrous and deadly, and they individually could do things to help create a better world. So I'd like to
0: read, actually, a little bit from the book but particularly about George Floyd's great-great-grandfather, because I think that that really not just humanizes, but it ties into the themes that I was also trying to lift up around how the Confederates have never stopped fighting after the Civil War. And the part of that effort, uh, there being a Confederate battle plan, part of that being well, I, I say silently sanctioning domestic terrorism. In some places not so silent at all. But the impact of that on different African Americans and our society overall, I think, is very poignantly illustrated in terms of uh, Floyd's great-grandfather, which I had nothing about until uh, I was actually reading you guys' books. I just want to read just a little bit of that. Also, I want people to hear. I, again, really want to Commend you guys for the 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 quality and the care of of the writing you're written now. So what you guys write about him is as follows: Born enslaved in 1857, George Floyd's great great grandfather, Hillary Thomas Stewart, spent his childhood working without pay in the sizzling fields of Harnett County, North Carolina. But by the end of the 19th century, after more than 30 years working as a free man. He had managed to amass 500 acres of his own farmland. His wealth attracted a measure of acclaim and with it, the collective ire of his white neighbors. Behind his back, they called him the rich nigger. He would come to know the risk of openly defying the racial order that had governed America with ruthless efficiency from its earliest days. So I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about well, for one, how you came to find out about and learn about the uh, the great-grandfather and then why that was so important for you in terms of uh, featuring that in a, as a core um, component um, of the book.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you read that that part of the book, uh, in part because it, it sort of exemplifies the, the thesis uh, about systemic racism, not only told through George Floyd's life, but in order to tell the true story of the Black American experience and George Floyd's experience, we had to go back, you know, a couple hundred years to the story of his family, and that is a story of constant striving, constant trying, and getting knocked down by systems and forces and people with bad intentions. Um, and so we learned about George Floyd's great-great grandfather through the oral history that had passed down, and through um, learning about him from george floyd's relatives who knew that they had a wealthy ancestor someone who had worked hard in america who had uh, survived being born enslaved and uh, after getting his freedom was able to get a large amount of wealth through sheer hard work he was not even able to learn how to read because that was banned uh, for black americans in north carolina in the 1800s and so he worked with his hands with his large family and was able to amass a large amount of wealth um, because he was industrious and because he was smart and we did additional research you know trying to substantiate what the family lore had been and what we had heard from family members and we went deep into the archives and you Found out quite a bit about George Floyd's ancestry. And we found out that there, you know, it's a story of a hardworking American family, a family that worked hard for generations, a family that had known wealth in part due to that hard work and had that wealth stripped away because of racism. There's no other way to put it. We looked at the records of how that wealth was acquired, how it was all legal, how it was all legitimate, and how it was stripped away in illegitimate ways that were deemed legal at the time because this was a period of racial terror which you are right about and you 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 know very well um you know after reconstruction we saw a pushback we saw a, a backlash to the fact that there were wealthy black uh americans who were doing well for themselves and george floyd's family got affected by that backlash and they had their wealth stripped away through fraudulent business deals through you know fake tax liens uh essentially uh, the state used their power to take away george floyd's ancestors wealth and so their family had to start from scratch again and losing that amount of wealth losing that amount of of power uh um, sort of leaves one feeling powerless and and leaves a a family at a position where it's hard to trust in the American system. It's hard to feel like your hard work will ever be acknowledged. It's hard to dream for great wealth and great power because you know that at a moment's notice that will not only get attention paid to you, but it could also put you in the crosshairs of people who don't like to see uh, people who look like you being wealthy. And so uh, that was a very important part of George Floyd's story that we had to tell because it had rever- reverberations throughout his uh, family line across several generations. And it helped us answer this question, you know, why did George Floyd come into the world poor? His family had been here for hundred, you a know, couple of hundreds of years. They had worked hard, but yet George Floyd came into the world in deep poverty. And one of the things we did in that chapter that you, you read was we compared the experience of the white family that owned George Floyd's ancestors and how they also came to America with nothing. They came voluntarily, of course, but they came, you know, seeking the american dream not having any wealth at all but over a very quick period of time they're able to amass wealth not only through the the trading of human beings but also through the fact that their hard work or their work was acknowledged it was respected and they were allowed to chase the american dream and benefit from the hard work of others who worked for them and so it was important for us to show you know for people who think slavery was a long time ago that you know all of these things that we talk about in our country's history were such a long time in the in the past we were mm-hmm. able to draw a direct line between that period and george floyd coming into the world in 1973 being born into deep poverty despite the hard work of his parents and his ancestors and so it was important for us to draw that link uh, and and sort of dispel dispel this myth that you know, because slavery was such a long time ago, it's having no impact on today. It's actually ha- having an impact on on people's real lived experiences today. And George Floyd was one example out of millions across this country. And we thought it was important to showcase that for people.
0: I'm so glad you guys did that as well, because, that again, a single story can tell volumes in ways that like statistics and larger narratives don't. And it just so goes at the heart of a lot of the misunderstanding that gets in the way of actually trying to build public support for addressing systemic racism. Like I was um, Ben Carson, right? When he ran for president on uh, the Republican side in I think it was 2016, he would, you know, he would try to castigate black people by saying that, well, my mom was poor and she didn't take any handouts and she worked hard. And I always want somebody to ask him, why was your mom poor, right? Was she lazy? Or do we, have, can we take it back a little bit to ask the understand if you take it back from the black folks just a couple of generations then you start to see and i love that phrase you use the wealth was stripped away that's not how people think about the status of african-americans in this country and so you take that and tie it to the reckoning that at least was begun certainly not done after uh, george floyd's uh, murder it's a, it can start to change the whole conception so i'm really really glad that you guys did that in that in that fashion
2: it's interesting, uh because I'm really fascinated by the comparison that you made with dr. Carson Steve. Uh, I did a number of profiles of uh, Dr. Carson when he was running for president, mm-hmm. and we had we had some of these conversations about the line between individual responsibility and societal responsibility and one of the mm-hmm. things that stood out to me and the connection uh that I would hope that someone like Ben Carson would make to the story of someone like George Floyd is that when we do the research, we learn about this thing called John Henryism, which is the act or the continual act of Black people in this country to have to do, gives me great efforts to show their worth and show their value. Mm-hmm. You know, it's commonly talked about as being, working twice as hard to get half as far. And it takes a lot, a Herculean task to be able to be deemed as well off, as smart, as capable as your white colleagues. We saw that in the story of Henry Stewart, George Floyd's great-great-grandfather. We also saw that in the story of Ben Carson, who told me that when he separated those twins at birth, he deliberately stood in the back of the press conference because he knew that if the media had seen that he was the one in the front of the line, they wouldn't have taken the work as seriously or understood its complexity. George Floyd also knew the idea of what his presence could do in a room, right? He was big, 6'6", 225 pounds. He knew that, and we talk about it in the book, that if he went into a room, he needed to greet people, shake their hands, make nice, because he wanted to show they weren't intimidated by him. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben Carson's not George Floyd's size. And even though George Floyd had higher ambitions than Ben Carson did when they were around the same age at seven years old, George Floyd wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. But he was a big mm-hmm. guy. And the people who wanted to join him in his American dream. Right? They looked at his size and his speed and gave him a football and a basketball instead of telling him to go to those textbooks. So in both of those lives, I think it's really important to note that they both made Herculean efforts to succeed in America. Interesting. You
0: referenced the John Henry phrase, right? This recording this a week after uh, Harry Belafonte passed. And I had posted on Facebook a picture of the album that my mom had playing— it would play all the time when I was a child growing up and one of the songs was John Henry. John Henry, he could hammer. It's a whole thing with that.
1: Tolu, mm. I wanted to ask you during your recent conversation with C-SPAN at the LA Festival Books last month, you talked about researching Floyd's childhood and his early years growing up in Houston, Texas, which, you know, as a like writer and journalist myself, I just really appreciated all that went into humanizing him and his story and all the research, as well as everything we talked about before, the context and all that we could learn about being reminded how no nobody just exists in a, their own lifetime, but connected to to the history of this country. I'm curious to hear from both of you in terms of a book, again, that was co-authored by two writers, two journalists. How did you both go about deciding who would take on which part, who would research what, and just that kind of how to put a project like this together with two writers?
2: Sure, well, one of the benefits uh, of working at the Washington Post during that time was that there's just a spirit of collaboration. There, I mean, a lot of folks have asked us about what it has been like to work with another person. And the truth is, it felt very natural. Uh, we worked on an outline together, a very detailed outline that put to life what we thought we could do with the book. We mostly adhered to that outline after, after we had agreed to it. And uh, some of it happened to be by geography. Tolu and I were thousand, more than a thousand miles away for most of this project. We saw each other very few times in person. We saw each other a lot. Virtually, but you know, Tolu uh, was in Houston. I was in Minneapolis. That allowed us to cast a very wide net about of people who to who we could interview. People who had known each other, and it also provided a really interesting way to fact check Charlene, in that because we were hearing the same story or similar stories from. Different people who are also in the room with an accuracy mm-hmm. of dialogue almost to the word, it allowed us to have a certain confidence in reconstructing a number of the scenes because we weren't hearing it from a single person and we weren't even hearing it in the same, sin- in the single interview. So a lot of the work had to do with transcribing, putting files in a Google Doc that both of us saw, being able to pull out different things uh, that we were both reporting and talking to one another. Just to mm-hmm. add to,
3: to that, there's, in some cases, there, there can be a little bit of territorial nature among journalists uh, who, you know, are dealing with sensitive sources and, you know, not always trusting that if you share your sources or your source material with your, you know, with your fellow journalists, that they'll, you know, handle it carefully or that they will be as nuanced as you are, uh, and they'll get all the context. But uh, Robert and I did not have the luxury of, of having that. We just had to be 100% transparent and open with one another, which meant sharing all of our interviews, the full transcripts of interviews, even the you know awkward mm-hmm. moments in our interviews where you know we we wouldn't allow the reader to see that because it, it might not make us look great. Experiencing the live awkwardness of asking people questions, and you know before things get edited, you know we just shared all of the raw files, all of the raw information. And that really allowed us to understand what we were working with. I benefited quite a bit from, from, you know, some of Robert's interviews that he was able to share and some of his sources that he was able to introduce me to, and they became my sources. And we, you know, we just, decided from the very beginning that if we were going to get this done and get it done on a very tight timeline, that we're just going to have to be very transparent with one another. And it helped us to feel confident in the kind of uh, approach that we took to writing, which is a very narrative approach, almost like a novel in which we were bringing these scenes to life through the words that that were, were spoken as they were spoken. And in order to do that, we needed to have, you know, multiple sources in many cases, backing up those words and making sure that we were reporting things accurately as they happened and being able to, you know, cross reference one another and ask one another about, whether we had heard something similar from another person who may have been in the same room, really helped us to be able to write with confidence and write with a sense of purpose that you know, we were recreating these scenes as they happened and not adding or subtracting anything from them. Um, in order to write a story that was truthful, but also compelling and a good read as well. So that was one of the benefits of having another person to be able to run down some of these anecdotes and really make sure that we were writing with um, assurance that everything that we were writing was was true and was accurate.
1: What's an example of something each of you discovered in the process of researching for the book that surprised you?
3: So many surprises. Ah, uh, where to start? You know, I had heard... And we had written about during the series uh, about sort of how George Floyd was not quite comfortable with the image that he projected in his body. The fact that he was a large man and that people would assume that, you know, he was intimidating because of his size, because he was, you know, he stood confidently over six feet. He was, you know, someone who went to the gym and worked out and, you know, he had an athlete's physique for for most of his life and people sort of saw that and, and they saw that and they put a stereotype on him, and how uncomfortable he was with that. Um, that was surprising to me. And we we were privileged to um, have access to some of George Floyd's writing, some of his lyrics, some of his poetry, some of his rap lyrics, um, and some of that insecurity comes through in 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 those words that he wrote. Sometimes to himself, sometimes he wrote letters to God. He wrote letters to his mm. girlfriends, and so you know, having that intimate understanding of what was happening internally in George Floyd's mind as he was processing how the world was looking at him, um, that was surprising to me. Um, the, The fact that, you know, he was a big man, but he always felt like someone who would go around saying "I love you" to everyone because he did not want to be seen as a punisher or seen as someone who was intimidating. Yeah. And I thought that was, you know, a surprise. Even though we had heard, you know, some of those anecdotes, we had heard, you know, so many people use the term "gentle giant." Uh, when we really got deep into the research and deep into the interviews, we saw that come to life, and we were able to sort of see that in its fullness uh not just in sort of the the cliched way that you think about it when someone says oh this person's a gentle giant you know after they 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 die you know people say nice things about them but we were really able to get very deep in these conversations and have people show us what they what they meant um and show us the kinds of scenes and the kinds of experiences that george floyd had that left so many people with that impression that though he was a You know, a large man, he was a soft hearted person. He was someone who was very much uncomfortable with this idea that he would be intimidating and wanted to put people at ease whenever he was in their presence.
2: Yeah. And to add to what Tolu was saying, because I think that was really trying to Exposed George Floyd's heart as we learned it was so important to us, it's especially because we never had the privilege of talking to him ourselves. And, you know, not just him being gentle, but also him being vulnerable. Mm. So many conversations that we had with people would be about the times when George Floyd would joke around, but if something serious had happened to him, if he had was dealing with the idea of a person who who had similar problems that he did. The amount of assurance that he would give them, but his ability and his willingness to speak about his own shortcomings, his own sense of failure. And coupled with that was this really American idea of persistence that he lived his life as though he believed, he truly believed, that one day people would be able to see him in his fullness, and by a fullness that wasn't determined by his size, but by the fullness of how he viewed his American experience, how he viewed his life, how he viewed others. One of the most resonant lines in one of the poems he read comes presumably a few weeks before he met Derek Chauvin and consequently his demise. And he's talking about all the hardship that he's had in life during the pandemic. He lost his job because of COVID. He had a case of the virus. He was struggling with drug dependency. Uh, None of these things are unusual. Drug dependency was on the rise in Minneapolis. One in two Black people in Minnesota were out of jobs. And in all that, he says, man, life sucks, but life never sucks. And, you know, I will concede Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily Proust, but I think it's really, (laughs) really valuable in terms of thinking Mm -hmm. about just what he was saying. You know, life is bad, but I'm not giving up on it. And I think those sorts of things continued to resonate when we actually meet George Floyd right his words are the words of a man who's not giving up but trying to plead for his life and in his humanity in a very American acceptable way
0: yeah so you you, you touched on Derek Derek chauvin I think you mentioned a little bit earlier as well so that's another very interesting contextual and historical aspect of the book that you actually dive into the life the family's journey and saga of the man who murdered George Floyd right so how did that come about where in this process did you get that focus and what was that like why did you want to actually lift that up as a key part as well
2: yeah well I had been really interested in learning about Derek Chauvin and we were considering having a part of the series be about him which ultimately would not have been the right thing to do but In allowing the reader to understand that this thing called systemic racism envelopes us all, it's not just an issue for people of color, it felt really important that we needed to dive into the person who would ultimately end George Floyd's life and ask the question, what could have happened in his life or in his understanding to think that this was a reasonable or at the time justifiable thing to do. And so to do that, we tried contacting probably about 150 people who had uh, known Derek Chauvin from high school, um, members of his family, people who he went to grade school with, middle school with, his roommate when he was in the armed forces, people who served with him in the police department. And what we wanted to show was how institutional bias and prejudice influenced not only his life trajectory, no one knew Derek Chauvin as being particularly ambitious growing up, but he found a life in the police department. And the thing that really stunned me about Derek Chauvin is he was not known for being particularly out-of-source police officer in his district, where police officers were known for, in the words of one of the people who we interviewed who ran that police precinct, people who used more force than they should. We were able to find at least eight instances in which he used the technique, a neck restraint technique, similar to how he murdered George Floyd. We found eight instances, at least, of him doing that to other people. And we also went through the history of that technique, and we talk more about it in the pages of the book, that helped to show that this was not something that was discouraged to use. It was encouraged to use. And so what we hoped the reader would understand by the end of it is that systemic racism envelopes all, and it influenced the way Derek Chauvin treated George Floyd that day. Now, again, we Derek Chauvin, he didn't return our phone calls or emails, but we tried, and we take great pains as journalists not to try to enter into people's heads unless there is real evidence to do so. But there are some details in there that talk about sort of his state of mind when he met George Floyd, how that could have come to be, but ultimately the societal responsibility that came crashing down on him when he had to make a choice on how to interact with this Black man who he met on May 25th, 2020.
0: Just interesting that Referencing this piece about Chauvin's background and how he came to this, what it was like. It's bringing me back to in a prior life, you know, I actually practiced law and we actually sued a number of police departments. And one of the things we looked at was the whole issue around the standards and what it took to become a police officer. And I just remember being very surprised and frankly a little alarmed at, frankly, how low the standards were for deciding that we would give people guns to Mm. be able to legally walk around with them. And it's not something that we really think about very much um, in our society. And so, I think, again, this is another example where a specific story can illuminate a much larger challenge
2: that we face in our society. Yeah, and to note that Minneapolis has some of the most stringent qualifications to be a police officer. You have to have a degree, a a post-secondary degree in in Minneapolis to become a police officer. But that does not mean that you're trained to do things in a way that's compassionate or conscientious to a community that you're dealing with. And there are a lot of things from uh, the handling of disciplinary notes, uh, the handling of complaints. uh, Derek Chauvin had more than 30 of them that we were able to find, how that complaint gets to action, what a police inspector is charged with noting and letting go, and how difficult it is to try and systemically change a police department. You know, we talked to Black officers, too, who are encumbered by the same system. Mm-hmm. You know, And so much of it is resonant and true with Derek Chauvin's life. But it is also true that I think there is a false mythology that Derek Chauvin was a particularly nefarious police officer. Right. The truth of the matter is he was acting like a police officer acts in the third precinct of Minneapolis in a place where they were not taking use of force complaints seriously and in a place where he was enabled to act in the ways he acted that day.
1: That's right. Tolu and Robert, as we've mentioned, this particular month does mark three years since George Floyd's death. Where do both of you think we are as a nation? After all, the protests, uh, the calls for solidarity for Black Lives Matter that spring and summer. And what are your observations from your point of view about the persistence of that particular movement? Uh, As Tolu had mentioned earlier, a lot of promises were made there was as we all remember an intensity to the genuine what felt like a genuine commitment a genuine outrage at the time and just wondering how all this is feeling right now as we are in 2023 may
3: yeah we had the privilege of capturing some of this in the book because we had a little bit more time than we had in the series to see how things might play out in 2021 and uh, and beyond and so we saw how the country responded to George Floyd's death in the immediate aftermath. We saw companies and different pieces and of our culture and different institutions commit to uh, diversity initiatives and justice initiatives that they had never committed to in the past. And some of those are ongoing. Uh, and so we saw police departments and states and local governments institute changes to how policing is done at the local level. And so one of the things we wanted to show in the book was that even as we saw a backlash to a lot of the change and a lot of the discussion about systemic racism and the quote unquote wokeness uh, that was intensified after George Floyd died, we did see change. We did see uh, a number of policies, real policies change uh, in our culture and uh, in our police departments. And so we wanted to capture that. And some of that is very much ongoing and it can be easy to you know, forget about that. As you said, we have a very short, Timeline and news, our news cycle is very short and so it was important for us to write about that and balance that with the broader sense of disappointment felt not only by George Floyd's family members who had pushed for federal changes that never got enacted, as well as a sense that the coming together that we felt after george floyd died would continue uh, and instead we've seen a splintering uh, in, in many ways of our of our culture we've seen a major backlash to the idea of critical race theory or even the discussion of, of racial justice or the discussion of america's history um and so we're living through that we're living through the fact that you know some of these subjects that were sparked and some of these discussions that were sparked by george floyd's death are uncomfortable they're uncomfortable discussions for a number of, of, of different people and so it is a a struggle to, you know, advance some of those justice causes. And, you know, we write about that in the last chapter of our book, which is entitled American Hope, we kind of deal with the the grapple, uh, the grappling with those issues that the country is going through, taking two steps forward in many ways, and then also taking a step back in some ways. Uh, And so three years later, we're still in the middle of that. We have definitely seen, you know, a dissipation of the enthusiasm behind, um, you know, pushing for racial justice issues. We've seen some of the corporate commitments sort of fall by the wayside uh, as, you know, companies feel less pressure and they also feel pressure from the other side, pressure to not be, quote unquote, so woke and not be so interested in, in justice issues or interested in diversity issues. And, you know, we are living through, this back and forth, this tug of war that's going on in our country, uh, where there is a push uh, in different directions. There's a push to have us become more willing to experience, you know, to to live uh, and experience more of what it would mean to have racial justice in our country and to commit to those things um, and to grapple with the reality of what it would take to bring about more equality and the difficulty and the challenge that it would take to actually enact some of those things, as well as the pushback on people saying that, you know, we should not enact some of those major policy changes that would be required so that the next George Floyd gets a better shot at life um, as he's coming up in the world. And so we are living through that challenge. It is disappointing for a lot of people, including the people that were closest to George Floyd, to see how, you know, the movement has fallen uh, and the energy behind the movement has really disappeared in a number of different ways. Um, But there are people still in in the trenches still fighting for justice. And so, you know, I I wouldn't want to discount that hard work and say that nothing's been done. But it is a disappointing moment for a number of people who are pushing for a more significant racial reckoning, a more significant set of changes to take place, not only at the local level, but also uh, nationally. And so, that struggle continues. We have seen more hashtags and more instances of police violence uh, since George Floyd died three years ago. But I do think there's a broader understanding of what is acceptable what is not acceptable and a broader understanding that um, people are willing to speak out against these kinds of injustices that maybe in the past would have been swept under the rug or may have been forgotten now people are more willing to take out their phones and call out injustice when they see it as it's happening but it's going to be a, a, a long journey to get to a place of full equality in part because there are forces that are pushing very vigorously against those things and so we're watching it alongside everyone else and seeing how this movement plays out um, and hoping that people, most importantly, will educate themselves. That's one of the things we wanted to do with the book was to make sure that people, no matter where they fall on the ideological spectrum, educate themselves and get aware of what it was was like for George Floyd to move
2: through the world.
1: Definitely. And I think your book does do that.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) It's funny because I was walking past – live in Washington, D.C., and I was walking past Black Lives Matter Plaza today. Mm. And I forgot it existed, you know, this place Mm. that was meant to memorialize and essentialize the movement and also a place that we wrote about where the president of the United States gassed his own citizens who were protesting. Mm -hmm. And I think sort of like how easy it was for me as a person who wrote this book to forget sort of the essential, big, messy sloppiness that was unearthed during that period in 2020 is a real tale of the tape, sadly, in terms of how things are progressing and how much for granted we've been able to take some of the major changes and the major the major movement that effaced faced. One of the things that I just want to add here is that, you know, toward the end of the book, we talk to many people, including uh, the Reverend Jesse Jackson and President Joe Biden about the persistence of racism and how that contrasts with the persistence of those who want to see it end. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, for those people who are in power, who don't have a personal stake in this. I mean, that they were willing to concede that, you know, maybe the shot has been lost. Uh, President Biden had said to us, hate never goes away, it can only hide. And in a lot of ways, that's easy for him to say, Mm -hmm. right? And there's also the true lived experience of people, largely Black people in this country who know that, There cannot be a waiting period to simply think that, over time, this country could get better, because it could be their son, who is Tyree Nichols or Ralph Yarrow, and it could be them who are Tyree Nichols or Ralph Yarrow. So Mm -hmm. instead of thinking about making a conclusive statement in the midst of a country that's very fluid, I think what we hope our book does is it serves as a challenge and a reminder, right? Because it's through the idea of personal story interweaving with larger narratives that we get to truly understand George Floyd. And I think what our reporting showed is that it's that same weaving of personal narrative and understanding of the larger stakes that will change the direction of this country. So the question then becomes for the reader, what are they going to do to help the country become a better place? Yeah, I I,
0: I very much noted the framing in the final chapter with uh, Reverend Jackson. I appreciate it. it was, uh, the, the, my team jokes that there's rarely a podcast that goes by. We don't reference um, Reverend Jackson and that. I thought that in terms of people who are not fully appreciating their impact on their history. So I was really um, glad to see that. And mm-hmm. while I have the ear of two reporters, may I just suggest in terms of potential future reporting that a lot of specific financial commitments were made after George Floyd was killed. And many of those commitments are not being fulfilled. And that really seems to me to be a topic worthy of somebody shining a spotlight on. So we're close to the end, we're ready to wrap. Before we do that, you guys yourselves are also, I think, important and inspiring figures who've risen to those positions, being able to tell these stories, tell them on large platforms, share them with the world. So I think our listeners might be interested to hear just you know, briefly about how your own journeys a little bit about how you kind of came to be in journalism.
3: Yeah, to to go through that journey a little bit, uh, I'll start off by saying that a lot of the journey is a result of luck. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm very humbled to have had the kinds of experiences that I've had. I started off in local news. Um, I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, and was able to intern at my local paper, the Tallahassee Democrat, through a scholarship program aimed at, you know, increasing diversity in journalism, you know, decades ago when the scholarship uh, program first started through Knight Ritter. And I I was a beneficiary of, of that program and I got my foot in the door and was able to work at a number of different local papers. And I can't say enough about the importance of local journalism, even though, you know, local journalism is is, is going through a hard time right now. That is a, a training ground where I was able to get my start and make, make mistakes and learn about the craft of telling stories and, and, and stories that had impact on a local level. And I started uh, covering Washington uh, almost 10 years ago. And I took a lot of the skills that I learned in local news to the national scene and have been you know, covering the White House uh, through, like I said earlier, a little bit of luck. Uh, where you know, I didn't know anyone in Washington, didn't know anything about reporting in Washington, but the combination of you know being young and there being you know some retirements, you know, and and an editor willing to take a chance and say, "Go cover the White House," um, I, I got a shot to 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 cover the Obama White House. And uh, I, I enjoyed it and, and stuck around and covered the Trump White House and all of the craziness that took place during those four years. And took some time to write this book and then got to jump back into the reporting gig as Bureau Chief covering the White House under Joe Biden. And so, you know, I've, I've had a, a fortunate experience and a fortunate career where I've been able to bounce around a little bit and write about history as it's happening. And the book that we, we, we wrote gave us a chance to slow down a little bit, so it wasn't very slow, but write a long form uh, project that allowed us to encapsulate some of the history that we're seeing uh, and connect it to some of the history uh, of this country. And so I feel very privileged to have had that experience and, and to have had the experiences that kind of built up the framework to make this book possible.
2: Yeah. Tolu and I have known each other for 15 years. Uh, we worked at the Miami Herald together, which is, I think, a part of the reason why we have comfort with one another. Uh, this is mm-hmm. probably going to be the only time I hope not the only time where you have a black man on the program reference Yentel as a part of his inspiration for career but oh, wow. um, in yeah. Yentel there's a song called a piece of sky that I used to love oh. um, It's because it all began the day I found that all I could see was a piece of sky I went out and looked around and I didn't know the world was it was so high or even half as wide and you know I grew up as a in the Bronx, in a very strange part of the Bronx. It was a enclave of working class Caribbean Americans and Italian Americans. And I never really saw myself much as a part of anything or anywhere. It was never represented in, in any of the shows I saw, the books I read. And that helped me develop this really interesting curiosity and understand, willingness and fascination to understand the rest of the world. And, you know, even as a kid, I loved going to different states and different neighborhoods and seeing how other people lived life. And that was a real part of the reason that attracted me to journalism, and it's a part of that curiosity that sort of like kept on <laughs> allowing me to do different things. So I my first job was working. I wrote obits for FoxNews.com when I was a freshman in college because I wanted to understand the conservative media. Um, I worked for different local papers in all different parts of the country, and uh, then I got a job at the Miami Herald and. I began traveling, covering the Gulf oil spill, talking to people in different bayous along the Gulf. And it was because of that reporting, I got a call one day from the national editor of the Washington Post demanding that I come in for a job interview. And they had me, I covered local news for for five years, where I largely traveled around the district. In fact, I had a column for a little bit where my only job was to stand on a street corner that a reader suggested any street corner in the district of columbia and tell the story of what happened there for 90 minutes and um then one day i got a call and i was asked to do the same thing for the national politics staff of the washington post and so that's what i did i was always the weird person in the politics meeting at the post uh, because <laughs> I, <laughs> I really wanted to deal with politicians, but I wanted to go to the places where they were from and talk to people about where they were from. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, you know, one day that last summer, I got a call from David Remnick from the New Yorker, mm-hmm. and he said, "We love what you do, and we want you to do it for the New Yorker." So, so that's how that's how I got to where I am today.
0: Well, we are, we are very glad you, both of you are where you are today. Go on. This could be part one of a multiple, multiple pod episode, but we'll have to wrap it here. But I do just want to, you know, say clearly how important your guys' voices are out in the world. I'm so glad that you're covering the stories that you are, that you're lifting up and bringing your analysis and your, your writing. I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for the writing you do. Thank you for writing this book. And thank you for writing this book so well. So thank you guys both for being with us.
3: Thank you so much for having us. It's
2: a, It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for allowing us to share this story. We appreciate it, Steve.
0: All right. So that was a great conversation. I'm really glad that we did it. And I really encourage people to get this book. And so, again, the subject matter obviously is incredibly important to the country. But I when I just started reading it, I was like, these guys really put everything into making this very well-written, strongly researched and quite compelling. So I really can't commend the book more. But we have to wrap the pod, so let's do that. So thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Tolu on Twitter at at Toluseo, T-O-L-U-S-E-O. And you can follow Robert at News by Samuels. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook, and subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at, at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, say his name and keep the faith.